0: Hi. Welcome back to Press Play. Tonight's story was inspired by true events, like a lot of our stories are. I know you may hear me say this a lot, but this is a story unlike any other that I have ever written. This type of genre is one that I have always wanted to tap into, but I never had the courage to. I didn't think I would be a good enough writer to compose a story in this particular genre because contrary to popular belief and perception, I battle with very low self-esteem issues. If you don't believe me, you can just go back to season one and literally binge listen to the entire thing and you'll get the gist. (laughs) But I have to say, creating this podcast, writing these stories making art with my friends has definitely helped redirect all of that negative energy. It's placed it into something that I feel that I have purpose in, something that I enjoy doing, something that I don't mind being up till 3 a.m. But anyhow, enough of that. Let's jump off this plane without a parachute and let me welcome you to episode 3 of Season 2 of Press Play.
1: I'm away. Win-
2: It was a typical quiet Thursday night in our town, Haines City. Per our usual ritual, the boys and I were sitting around the office watching Family Feud and staring at the clock when the phone rang. We all looked at each other in disbelief because neither one of us had answered that emergency line since old lady Minster slipped in her bathtub and died back in 08. I quickly grabbed the phone and on the other end was a woman's voice frantically telling me about a murder at Lollipop's. The local gentleman's club, by the way. But before I could get her name, she hung up. We grabbed our guns, badges, and headed out. We arrived and the scene was surrounded by homicide investigators and forensics. I lifted the crime scene tape and quickly pulled out my badge from my full pocket. I continued into the club from the back door. I immediately noticed that to my left was a room full of clouds hanging from the ceiling hovering three inches above the floor with white fairy lights. The room was a sweet baby blue color that finished off the appearance of the morning sky. In the middle of the room sat a vintage white Victorian chair with a gold trim, and on that chair was our victim. I was greeted by an officer who briefed me in. He said the victim was a 42-year-old man known as Big Man Wallace, a.k.a. Gene Wallace Esquire a young, prominent attorney from Jacksonville that visited Haynes City often. He was 5'9", athletic built, white, and semi-balding. Mr. Wallace left behind a wife of 20 years. As the forensic photographer captured the scene on his camera, I proceed to examine the body. He was sitting up, both arms dangling on the sides of the chair, his body slouched into the seat, His eyes were still open and his pants were down to his ankles. There were no signs of skin under his nails which meant no sign of struggle or fight. No signs of strangulation. All of the blood seemed to have been coming from the waist down. His boxers were still on but slightly pulled down and that's when I noticed a huge chunk of his genitalia missing. I held my flashlight to the area to look closer. It was a very clean cut like someone had definitely done this before. His legs were covered in blood and in the front left pocket of his trousers I located his wallet. But no money and no credit cards. As we continued with the investigation we extracted a long black satin glove that was under the chair. One that was made to fit the small delicate hand of a woman. I walked to the front of the entrance of the club and asked the young lady to see it at the desk. Her name was Holly. I asked if she had recognized Mr. Wallace as a regular at the club. She said he was one of the most polite and well-mannered patrons of the joint. That he had always come in with a giant smile and of course wads of money. He was generous and knew the names of every girl in the place, including their birthdays. One of the dancers told her that Mr. Wallace seemed to have a fetish of spoiling the women he could only touch, but never fuck. That he would also get very handsy in the heaven room from time to time, but then apologize right after. I asked her where she was at the time of the murder, and she advised that she was at her desk doing her job when she heard screaming and people rushing out the door. But she hadn't known what had happened until the police arrived. I thanked her for her time, and I headed off to the back where she had told me the dancers were. It was a very pink locker room. The lockers were pink, the floor had pink tiles, and the walls had pink literary crown molding. It was like Pepto-Bismol took a shit. There were about 50 girls sitting around, hugging and crying with robes on, shivering in terror. Some were still dressed in their fishnets and pasties while detectives pulled them to the side for questioning. I ordered for all of the women to be covered before any more detectives continued with questioning. I approached one of the ladies sitting at a vanity who was sobbing uncontrollably and saying, I'm the one who led them into the heaven room. I led him to his death. She called herself Tootsie. I asked Tussie what she meant and she proceeded to tell me that she took Mr. Wallace into the heaven room for a private dance. She said after she was done with the dance, she noticed his eyes were rolling to the back of his head. She asked if he was okay and he told her that he had taken a few beans so he could enjoy his nights with his girls. So she left the room to grab him some water and when she came back, the chair was turned around and there was blood on the floor. She turned him around saw his trousers were engulfed in blood, screamed and ran for help. I asked her if she had seen anyone coming into the room when she left to get him water, but she said no, and that the security guard, Theo, would only allow two people at a time in the room. I then questioned Theo, who was the only security guard assigned to monitor the back rooms. I asked him about Mr. Wallace and Tootsie entering the room together. He said yes. He remembers greeting Mr. Wallace while he followed Titsy into the room. I asked him if anyone else had gone in there with them. He said no, but that he recalls walking by the restrooms and seeing a woman in the bathroom stocking up cigarettes for the evening. He couldn't really make out who she was because the back area had very little lighting, but he said it may have been one of the girls that sold cigarettes in the bathroom between dances. But then his attention became occupied by a fight that broke out at the bar between two men. I thanked him for his time and advised we would be in touch. I decided it would be best to talk to the manager and owner, Gus. I walked out of the locker room and headed upstairs to his office. On my way up, I got a good view of the club from the stairs. The club was a warehouse turned into a very whimsical Candyland white drapes, and oversized models of fake candy hanging from an 80-foot ceiling with neon lights lining all of the walls. The dancers' poles were all red and white to resemble candy canes. There were giant LED-lighted lollipop structures with a small platform for the women to perform their acts. There were huge screens on each wall of the main room that projected trippy pictures of candy. I finally reached Gus's office, And it was a large room, and one of the walls was just a two-way mirror so he can see out, but no one could see in. I asked him where he was at the time of the murder, and he said he was in his office counting singles from his safe. He claimed that to maintain the privacy for all of the women, he never installed security cameras. As we were going down the list of all the women that were working that night, I noticed an open locker with a long stem rose and a card inside. It read, XOXO Ruby Rider. I immediately yelled out for forensics to take photos of the note and rose. We scanned the list of names of all the employees for a Ruby Rider, but nothing came up. The name didn't ring a bell with none of the ladies, and they all said the manager of the place hadn't hired any new dancers in years. We scoured the entire building for clues. Searched the parking lots, but no leads. We were already about 14 hours into our investigation, and we decided to call it a night. We let the ladies go home, bagged the body, and advised the manager he would need to shut down lollipops until further notice. As I drove off to head to the station, I was a mile out when all of a sudden I heard a loud bang. I looked through my rear view and saw a huge flash of light and smoke coming from the direction of lollipops. I turned on my red and blues, hit a U, and sped in that direction. I arrived and the place was in flames. You could hear the fire truck on its way. Fuck, another 14 hours of this shit. The fire department arrives and after about 4 hours they were able to put out the flames. The bomb squad brings to my attention bags that were left around the building that were full of explosives. The explosives known as GOMA-2-ECO that can be ignited with a simple timer and a cell phone. Our killer has done this before. Could he possibly be ex-military? My mind goes back to the security guard Theo who listed himself as a veteran. I returned to the station and called the manager of lollipops to inform him of the explosion. I casually asked him about the fight that broke out at the bar. He said he doesn't recall a fight ever breaking out and that the only action that happened was the murder of Mr. Wallace. What would have been Theo's motive? Money? He can't get paid much being a security guard. Maybe it was a duo, a two-man job. I decided to circle back with all of the employees. I called them all one by one to ask them about the fight that broke out at the bar. Turns out the fight was just some drunk idiots acting a fool but security did bounce him out which means his story does check out. What about the club owner? Why doesn't he recall anyone getting bounced out? I remembered he did say that he was locked in his office counting singles from a safe. Every single story checked out. Everyone seemed to have been where they said they were at the time of the murder and had alibis to back it up. Our best bet was to track the credit cards to see where our killer was off to next. We contacted Mrs. Wallace and broke the news to her at the station. She broke down in tears and began to hyperventilate. We sat her down in one of the interrogation rooms for privacy and explained everything to her once she seemed calm. She was very surprised to learn that Mr. Wallace was found dead at the Gentleman's Club. She says she had always extended an invitation for both of them to go and experience the club life together, but he would get so angry with her. So angry he would not even speak to her for hours after bringing up the subject because he was so appalled. She said, other than his detest of her being at a strip club, that their marriage was one of the only very few get-to-experience. I asked her if her husband had any enemies and she said Mr. Wallace was very well liked and never had any confrontations with anyone that she knew of. She provided us all of the names of the credit card companies he used and the passcode to his cell phone. I thanked her for her help and sent her home. I unlocked Mr. Wallace's phone and all of his messages seemed to turn up nothing noteworthy. Just a successful attorney, loving father, and husband. I started to become a little frustrated that all of our leads were just at ends, so I called it a night. It was 4 a.m. and the seventh day of the investigation. I was exhausted and sleeping in my office for five days, so I decided to head home and get some sleep in an actual bed. It would all start again tomorrow, so I arrived home, unlocked my door fed my cat Gideon when my phone rang. Hello? Yeah, this is Detective Neeson. It was FBI officer Emma Torres calling to ask questions about the lollipop case. She told me she saw the story about my case on an online newspaper called the Florida Times. The case piqued her interest because there were two other very similar cases that occurred a few months ago. One in a Missouri Gentleman's Club where they found a 44-year-old explosives engineer named Carl Hud. He was in one of the back bondage rooms tied to a chair. His pants were down to his ankles and his tongue cut off. The other in a cabaret in Louisiana a month later. This time a 40-year-old man named Peter Frampton, a world-renowned urologist that was best known for being the first to perform a penile transplant in the U.S., Mr. Frampton was also in the back room of a club, bleeding out from a cut in his femoral artery. She said both clubs were blown to bits shortly after the investigators and forensics commenced their research. She asked if I had found a black satin glove, a rose, and a note that read, XOXO Ruby Rider. I immediately felt a chill run through my spine. Then she said to me, our killer is definitely a woman. I tell her to send me both files to my office so I can compare notes. I grab my car keys and head out to the station. The files were on my desk ready to review along with some of Mr. Wallace's credit card statements. I dive in and find the latest transaction, which was tracked to a pawn shop down in Hollywood, Florida, a city just south of Fort Lauderdale. I snatch up the files, my keys, and began the four-hour drive. It was 10 a.m. when I arrived, and I knew I only had a few hours left until our murderess would strike again. I pulled up to my hotel, and shortly after check-in, I walked across the street to a local 1960-style diner called JP's for some much-needed coffee. I sat down and went over all of the photos of each body and the details of the crime scenes. I had about four cups of coffee, thinking it would help with my exhaustion, but that was an epic fail. I collected my files and got up to leave to my hotel for some rest when...
0: I'm so sorry. I'm running on coffee and dead brain cells. I wasn't... Uh, No, I'm sorry. I was just trying to find the restroom and... Jesus, I'm so fucking clumsy. I looked up and found a 5'5", brown-skinned
2: woman dabbing tea off of herself. She had curly dark hair and wore a black satin dress that hugged all the right places, with strappy heels to match. She looked up at me and we locked eyes for what felt like years. Her hazel eyes, full lips, and cheekbones could hypnotize you for all of eternity. I realized I was still staring at her like a dumbass, so I kneeled down to grab my files. She then scrambles to help me.
0: Here, let me get those for you. No, no, that's
2: okay. I wouldn't want you to...
0: No, por favor. It's the least that I can do since I ran into you. We stood up, and she handed me my files. Thank you, miss... Elena.
2: Elena Blanco. Fuck, even the sound of her name put me in a trance. I stuck out my hand. We locked eyes again as she placed her hand on mine. Again, I realized I was looking like a total creep, so I pulled my hand away and offered to buy her another cup of tea. It's the least I can do for ruining your dress.
0: That ninety-nine tea won't make up for a vintage Dior, but... Okay, I'll take you up on that. But only if you join me. What a small price to pay for a ruined vintage Dior.
2: We sat down and talked for hours. Elena was a social worker that had just moved to Florida from New York because she was tired of the snow and the smell of urine in elevators. Can't blame her. She told me she was originally from a small rural town in Puerto Rico and was the youngest of seven siblings that were raised by a single father. Her mother died of cancer in their home when she was nine. She told me after that her father was never the same. He got hooked on moonshine, he made himself and shot himself in the forest five miles away from their own farm. After that, she was sent to New York to live with her aunt and uncle by marriage, where she confided in her uncle to protect her, but repeatedly molested her for years. When she turned 15, she ran away and lived in an even rougher life on the streets. She panhandled for money, sold flowers, cigarettes, drugs, even sometimes her body.
0: See, that's why I became a social worker. I wanted to help young women like myself that were dealt a bad hand in life. But anyways, tell me about you. Do you like your job? What are you currently working on? I hesitated. What? Is it one of those, like, if I tell you I have to kill you type of cases or what? (laughs) No, it's a case about a woman serial killer, actually. Wow. I was expecting maybe a armed bank robber or a large kilo of cocaine bust on the coast. Tell me about our lady. How dangerous is she? Well, thus far, we know she hates men. Um, she
2: cuts off body parts and... I don't know what it is about this woman that made me so damn comfortable. I poured out every detail of the case to her, even though I knew I shouldn't discuss murder cases with civilian strangers. She kept telling me that we were no longer strangers, and to just think of her as another detective, helping me crack the case. I played along with it for a while longer, but then my eye caught a glimpse
0: of her gold watch. Fuck, I'm sorry, Len, I have to go. Oh, shit. So do I. It's my first day at my second job and I can't be late
2: You never told me about your second job
0: Yeah, I, I'm sorry I, I, I got a job last night as a bartender It's it's just a gig
2: Okay, well do you have a car?
0: No, it, it's okay I'll, I'll catch an Uber It it seems like you have your work cut out for you I can drive you um, I mean, you, you're trying to find your murderous butcher vixen And I just You know what, just uh, come grab a drink with me At my job Just Just meet me there
2: she placed a card on the table.
0: Here's the address. It was nice to meet you, uh...
2: Leo. Leo Neeson.
0: And just like that, she was out the door.
2: I was smitten with her. I could tell because I don't like meeting new people, especially after my fiancé Marie's passing three years ago. But there was something so hypnotic about Elena that I just couldn't resist. I had to see her again. In fact, I had to see her tonight. I picked up the card she left on the table. It was a white card with only an address on the back. I put it in my wallet and placed cash on the table to pay the tap. I floated right out of that diner with a grin from ear to ear. I headed out to the pawn shop listed on the report and questioned the only clerk that was in the shop at the same time the transaction was processed. The clerk looked up the date and time I gave him in his security footage in the back. Turns out the camera was not even recording at the time this transaction was processed. Fuck, another dead end. It's been four days since I met Elena and not a minute has gone by that I haven't been longing to see her again. All I have done these past four days is walk around every club and bar in Hollywood searching for a solid lead. But let's face it. Elena's been on my mind since the day she left her car on the table and I haven't been able to think straight since. Maybe I need to see her one last time. I mean, she works at a bar, I have the address, and why not have some fucking fun? I'm in Miami. It's been three long years since Maria and I don't want to be the sad guy forever. Tonight, I'm someone else. I'm not sure who I want to be, but tonight I am definitely not me. I jumped in the shower, put on my best robe, combed my hair, and sprayed on some cologne. I looked myself in the mirror, practiced my head nod for Elena, and left. I got in my car and headed to the address on the white car. The address took me to a huge warehouse complex with a bunch of tires out front. There were no cars coming by and no sign of a bar in the area. I pulled up in my Camaro to a metal code box with a card slot on it the fuck is this for do i put my credit card in it i mean maybe this is one of those speakeasy type of bars where you have to have a special key or code to get in a light bulb goes off in my mind i quickly grabbed the white card she gave me and placed it in the slot suddenly i feel my car sinking lower and lower into the ground The car touches the ground and I hear a thump of a heavy door above my head. The floor underneath my car seems to be on like some sort of rotator belt, slowly propelling it forward. The movement comes to a halt and a man in a suit comes to open my door. He welcomes me by name and directs me to the red light at the end of the long and dark hallway. The door opens just before I get the chance to place my fingers on the handle. I walk into a huge nightclub with 50 foot poles bolted from the ceilings with some of the most beautiful women I had ever seen. I made my way to the bar at the back of the club so I can get a better view of the place and hopefully bump into Elena. I noticed that every bartender and waitress was in a head to toe catsuit with a face covering. There was no way I was going to be able to identify her now. Before I could order a drink I felt a hand on my shoulder. I turned around and it was one of the women in the catsuits. She stuck her hand out, began to walk backwards and signaled to me with her finger to follow her. Her finger was like a magnet making my body chase behind her and making my mind go blank. She takes me to the back of the room with a stage on a pole in the middle and disappears through a door on the other side of the small room. A song then begins to play. The next thing I know a curvy woman comes in making her way to the pole. She was dressed in a gold belly dancing outfit. Did I just walk into heaven? Elena must have set this up. The woman was circling around the pole while she sways her hips to the music. Another woman in a catsuit walked in with a drink on a tray. She hands me the drink and I hand her my credit card. The belly dancer came down from the pole right after the catsuit woman left. She made her way to me and positioned herself right in between my legs with her back towards me, swaying her hips from side to side, taking my hands and placing them on her hips so I can sway with her. I felt the liquid courage and goosebumps surging through me, so I maneuver her hips so she can face me. My hands make their way up and down, caressing her body. She pulls my hands down. I try again and she pulls them down before I could even touch her. I go to grab her ass and she pins both of my wrists pretty tightly to the walls, leans into my ear and says,
0: And here I thought you were different, Detective Neeson. I should have known you were all the same.
2: Three years have gone by. I moved to Cali and found myself a boring desk job at LAPD. I walked into the station, grabbed some coffee and went straight to my desk. I turn on my computer, and on the home page of my web browser, a news headline pops up. The vixen belly dancer killer finally meets her fate. The article spoke about Mr. Huds, Mr. Frampton, and of course Mr. Wallace. Detailing each murder like the reporter had been following me each step of the way. It even included the night Elena tried to make me her next victim, naming me a hero that only got away with a few missing fingers. One of the other officers had been talking about Elena's case for months and even marked his calendar for today. The day. That same officer turned on the TV and there she was. Inside that tiny screen. Looking so small and innocent in her satin black dress. Leaving the courtroom, surrounded by reporters and paparazzi. One of the reporters asked if she felt remorseful for any of the men she killed. She looked straight into the camera and
0: said, Fuck no, and I'll do it again.
1: Oh my no. I think i lost my mind. I think I've lost control Oh no, I think i lost my mind. I think i